So today we're looking at the fourth church, the church at Thyatira, and uh, let's just jump right into the passage. It'll be towards the end of chapter 2, verses 18 through the end, and if you've been with us before, um, these previous three churches we've looked at, uh, you're going to see the pattern that we've talked about before in those previous play out here, pretty obvious ways. So starting in verse 18, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the church will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Those are pretty strong words this week. Um, If you read the passage ahead of time, you probably thought to yourself, uh, so far these churches we've looked at, these are probably some of the strongest. The rebuke here, the confrontation that Jesus has with this church doesn't mince a lot of words. But again, I think it's interesting how applicable these words, Jesus is to this church, actually end up looking to our own lives, our own situation. Um, Remember, we said these seven churches in Revelation that John is addressing, they're all facing a similar kind of persecution, a kind of pressure to conform to all of the Roman values, the systems, the perspectives of these cities that they find themselves in. And really, what these first seven letters are, they're ways of dealing with this societal pressure, how different churches respond in these different conditions. Um, Ephesus, the first church, taught us about theology without love. You remember it. They circled their wagons and drew lines and all of a sudden found themselves neither loving one another nor the city they were in. Smyrna taught us about facing suffering, the inevitability of it and how we face it. Pergamum, last week, taught us about privatizing our faith, just keeping our mouths shut, doing this Jesus thing in private behind closed doors and living like everyone else in public. Thyatira is going to teach us about maybe a new word, Gnosticism. Um, Stick with me. We'll get there. If it's not one that sounds super familiar to you, you said, oh, just this week I was struggling with Gnosticism myself. Um, We'll make sense out of it, I promise. Um, Of all of the seven churches, we know the least about this city of Thyatira. We don't know very much because it apparently wasn't a very important city in the first century, probably not in many of the centuries before it. There's very few places that this city ever gets mentioned in the ancient literature, and when it does, it tends to only be in sort of geographical listings or lists of cities with descriptions. There was nothing noteworthy about the physical location of Thyatira. You remember these first two, Smyrna and Ephesus, were coastal cities. And then Pergamum, a big capital city just inland on the river, Thyatira said even farther inland in a place that wasn't particularly noteworthy. There were no high hills or acropolises like there were in Pergamum where great temples would have been constructed on. There were no impressive ports or temple structures like we saw in Ephesus. 
There were no gold roads that wrapped around mountains like we talked about in Smyrna. We do know a little bit about how this city, Thyatira, was formed, and it wasn't a great start. It was really just an outpost. A few soldiers were set there to guard an important road long before Rome had even existed, most likely under the Macedonians. You might remember from an old college class in Western literature, Alexander the Great was one of these. So way back in the ancient Greek history, this set of troops was set down on this road to protect the road that led into the more important city of Pergamum. The outposts had been strategically placed to protect that road. The idea would be something like this. If an invading army was coming into the more important place to protect Pergamum, this outpost would at least slow the army down long enough to let Pergamum, the more important city, get its defenses in place. Over time, a city did start to form around this military outpost in this valley. Most of it was indefensible. Nobody had spent time or money building walls or fortresses to protect it. It was kind of just an outpost on the bit of a frontier in this Asian territory. It only served to slow down an approaching army to protect what was more important, these grand cities, places like Pergamum. But slowly, this city, Thyatira, began to form. Um, the city didn't have all of the large centers of worship that we've talked about in so many of these other prominent Roman cities. But there still would have been probably little temples, all sorts of shrines and gods set up to be worshipped throughout the town. The historical record often associates the god Apollo with the city of Thyatira. Um, Apollo is depicted as a warrior god with bronze armor and a double-bladed axe. Usually he's riding on a horse at full gallop as he goes into battle. It's the perfect image of a god, a patron god, Apollo, for this rough military town out on the edge of the territory, Thyatira. It's also interesting, Apollo is the god, or excuse me, the son of Zeus, the, the sort of main god in this Greek religion. So here's Apollo, this son of the great god, who makes himself a warrior, clothed in this bronze armor, the image depicted. It's probably the reason why Jesus, in his first words to this church, verse 18, reminds them, that he is the son of God, direct confrontation with Apollo, the son of Zeus. And it's probably also why Jesus describes himself with burning eyes and feet like burnished bronze. He picks up this image of one covered in bronze armor, this son of a god, and puts himself in the very position of this patron god, Apollo. The depiction is probably also related to the trade and all of the merchant work that was going on in a city on an important road like Thyatira. One historian says this, Thyatira was well known for its trade guilds. Beyond dyeing and woolen goods, the guilds worked with leather and linen and bronze and garments and pottery and baking and even some slave dealing. Uh, it seemed to be the kind of town that would have had a lot of businesses, small business, trades, merchants, nothing too impressive, nothing extravagant, but a working class kind of place. A god Apollo, a warrior god, the perfect one to represent it. The only other place that Thyatira gets mentioned in the New Testament is, you might remember it, there's a particular woman from there in the book of Acts, Lydia. We read that Lydia, one of the first converts in all of Asia under Paul's ministry, was from Thyatira, and she was a merchant who sold purple cloth, is the way that she's described in Acts, which fits pretty well with the picture we get of the city. It's the kind of place where merchants did work, built businesses on an important road where it had easy access to larger cities where they actually made their money and sold the goods. I imagine Thyatira maybe a little bit like a city like Pittsburgh or Detroit. This is a working class kind of town. It's blue collar. It may not be steel, but bronze is the source, like we associate steel and working with Pittsburgh. It wasn't a poor town. There was plenty of wealth, people having upward mobility, building businesses, making money through their trade. But these weren't established aristocracies. These weren't rich families with long lineages, trust funds, 
elites. These weren't the important Romans coming to grand, beautiful cities on retreat. These people worked hard. They scraped out a living, built businesses, did it in a rough-and-tumble military outpost town without a whole lot of notice to what was going on. Jesus looks down on that church, and I think it fits well, the, the affirmation that he gives them. He looks at this work ethic, this place known for its work, known for its merchants, and he says that it shows up in the way that they're worshiping. He looks at them and sees all of the hard work, the way that they're progressing. This church hadn't grown tired like some of the other churches, but they were hard after it. His words is, their last works are more than their first. They seem to be gaining momentum as they serve God, doing more, accomplishing more. One commentator explains it this way. Whereas Ephesus had fallen away from its original spirit and enthusiasm, you remember they're the ones who got strict about theology and the love sort of drained out, Thyatira had grown more energetic as time lapsed. They had become more fervent in their worship. Um, Thyatira was a place that we would have thought of as alive with what God was doing. I imagine the worship in these small churches was probably good and lively. People were volunteering and making sacrifices with their time and money to build the church, to do ministry. There was probably real fellowship that was vibrant. Jesus looks at it all and says, this church is alive and all of the great works that you're doing are only increasing. They're growing and going somewhere. The people were as hardworking in their faithfulness as they were in all of these trades and businesses that became the identity of the city they live in. This wasn't the kind of place where people got complacent, but the kind where they were ready to put in a hard day's work. But then Jesus turns to his issue with this church. As much as they had accomplished, he explains, I quote, You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus goes on a few verses later to say that she is teaching the, quote, deep things of Satan. She probably literally isn't teaching about Satan. You might remember in one of the earlier churches, Jesus criticized the synagogues of Satan as a way of saying that the synagogues have gone astray. Probably here he uses that phrase, the deep things of Satan, to say that the deep things she's teaching, though she imagines them to be faithful and Christian, are really just distortions, temptations, a message of Satan himself. He also refers to this woman, this prophetess, as Jezebel. Um, you remember last week when we were talking about the city in Pergamum, he referenced Balaam, another one of these Old Testament characters. He does the same thing here with this teacher by referring to her as Jezebel. It's probably not her real name. Maybe it could have been, but most likely not. He's using it as a kind of an analogy. He's drawing a connection with the story, an Old Testament one they would have been familiar with, and linking it to what they saw happening in their own church. Um, you might remember Jezebel's story. Someday when we go back to the Old Testament, we're not too far from it. It's in 1 Kings, so we eventually get there. But she was a pagan Phoenician princess who had married Ahab, an Israelite, and the two of them eventually became king and queen of Israel. Uh, she worshipped Israel's God, at least claimed to. She was the queen of Israel, after all. But pretty quickly, she ran out all of the prophets of Israel and replaced them with her own prophets of Baal. It was during her time that Elijah, the prophet, began his ministry and began to speak out. Eventually, the next king who would follow after Ahab, Ehu, would have Jezebel executed because of this kind of syncretism, this practice of both worship she had introduced. And while her executioner, Ehud, was coming to her, we read in the story that she adorned herself in expensive jewelry and put on makeup. Um, it was possible that she knew she was about to die and she was preparing. I'm going to look my best, facing death. But she got a reputation for trying to tempt Ehud, and that reputation has been pretty hard to shake through history because it's the thing we most associate with Jezebel. Her name became synonymous with a kind of sin and idolatry and paganism. Rough, her story was difficult to read, painful, 
Israel had been led by her temptation into syncretizing all of its worship, pulling in pagan idols, mixing them with their own faithfulness to God. Mixing Israel's worship with pagan worship was really the thing that she had done. Um, Some people, when they read this story then, this letter in Revelation, and hear that there's this woman in this church at Thyatira, a a Jezebel who's leading people astray, they imagine that this woman must have been some kind of -of out-of-control pagan teaching about sex and idols and leading everybody into it. Um, I don't think that's probably the right way to think about who this false teacher, this Jezebel in Thyatira was. It's probably not as over-the-top as the reputation Jezebel has would lead us to believe. This analogy with Jezebel is probably pointing out that what this false teacher is doing is she's leading many into a similar kind of syncretism that mixes faithfulness with idolatry. She was twisting the faith the whole time, considering considering herself to be faithful, giving lots of talk and lots of attention to God. But in her teaching, she was slowly giving people a license to sin, to mix in this pagan culture they found themselves living in, Roman ideals, with her twisted version of faithfulness to God. Probably the most descriptive way of understanding who she was and what she was doing was the fact that Jesus points out she called herself a prophetess. Thyatira was a town that was actually pretty well known for these female prophets. Uh, Just outside of the town, historians tell us there was a famous temple. The temple was to the god Sabbath with a pagan priestess they called Sybil. People would go to her, she would sit in this temple, and they would go and pay a sum of money with some trip that they had taken to the place, and she would read their fortune or have some sort of an oracle, give them instructions on how the gods were telling them to act or handle a certain situation. Uh, One of the ancient writers explains this Sybil this way. They write, The Sybil with frenzied mouth uttered things not to be laughed at, unadorned and unperfumed, yet reaches to a thousand years with her voice by aid of the gods. You get a little bit of a picture of what this prophetess would have looked like in this pagan temple. In other words, these were women who got into trance-like frenzies, speaking all sorts of strange words, and eventually coming out of it with secrets and insights and oracles and predictions that had been handed down through them by the gods themselves. What's really interesting, I found this so fascinating this week, Uh, historians think that probably around this first and second century that many of the Roman Jews and Christians actually sort of syncretized some of this prophet work, these pagan experiences, into their own forms of prophecy in the first century. So one historian writes this about how these priestesses were impacting even Christian practice. The prophetic utterances of women called Sibyls in ancient Greece and Rome, believed to have been inspired by the god Apollo, Collections of these utterances played an important part in the religious history of ancient Rome. Some are now believed to have been composed by Jews and later by Christians, both groups imitating earlier pagan oracles in an attempt to win converts. Um, I went down a long rabbit trail with that one this week because I found it so interesting. Uh, Few of us have probably ever paid money to go to a priestess oracle who goes into a trance-like state and then predicts about our future. Maybe some have. Most of us, I don't think, probably. Uh, But it shouldn't surprise us that Christians, even in the first century in the ancient world like Thyatira, were picking up pagan rituals and worship and trying to find ways to mix it into the way that they practiced worship and faith to God. It shouldn't surprise us because some Christians today are still trying to force cultural adaptations into their worship with that last line sounding so relevant in their attempt to win converts. Romans were always paying to see these ecstatic prophetesses. Why not start our own Christian version of them? We can have her pray to our Christian God and get special messages from our Christian God and call the whole thing Christian and it'll attract all sorts of people. Aren't Christians always trying to take something that seems to be working in culture and produce some Christianized version of it to call our own? 
That background, I think, helps us understand a lot more of probably what was happening in this church at Thyatira. But this prophetess teacher teaching deeper things to Christians in the congregation. She was very much Christian. She considered herself to be. She called herself Christian. She talked a lot about the Christian God. She had plenty of good works to show for what she was accomplishing. But she wasn't content with the simple gospel that she had received. She had taken up the work of unlocking secrets, hidden wisdom about God that she could use and pass on to only the most devout. It seems like the Christians, especially in a place like Thyatira, were eating stuff like this up. A prophetess with access to secret knowledge about God to make us deeper and better Christians. She could teach them new things, hidden things, secret things about God and faithfulness. She had a reputation for an inside access to all of God's plans and his secrets that she could unlock to make everyone's life and faithfulness that much easier. They must have imagined even their non-Christian friends could have found this stuff interesting and probably would have drawn some in to hear more about this Christian God. That kind of thing was a big problem in the first century church, on into many of the second and third centuries. It was a bigger part of this teaching, this new word I said we would talk about called Gnosticism. Um, if you haven't heard that word, it's worth learning because a lot of the letters in the New Testament are written dealing with this issue, this false teaching of Gnosticism and this sort of ecstatic prophetic experience that leads to heightened, deeper things about God was a part of it. The Gnostics were Christians. Many of them came out of Christian faith, but sort of twisted it and adapted it into this modified version. The first thing that they taught, probably the most foundational, was that the body, the material world, were weak and dying and had almost no value to the Christian. They were constantly holding us back, like chains, these mortal bodies, this flesh. They held us back from higher wisdom, a form of deeper spirituality. The goal then, for most of these Gnostics, was to free yourself from the material world through this word Gnosis, which is Greek for wisdom. The more wisdom, the more insight you could accumulate, the more you could free yourself from the painful reality of a physical world, and you could become enlightened. What you did with your body then wasn't nearly as important as the spiritual experiences that you had, that you learned, and that you accumulated. That came with some pretty big implications, this false teaching in the first century church. If the body didn't really matter, then what you did with your body didn't really matter as long as you were growing spiritually, as long as you were learning new things, as long as you were in on things, as long as you were having spiritual experiences that were enlightening you, who really cared what happened with this falling away dead physical universe? Gnostics were strict with their spirituality, these secret things of God, but they were far less concerned with what happened in their physical bodies and giving in to those desires. Um, there was a Gnostic leader in Alexandria around 135 AD, so we're just 30 years or so after the letter is being written to these churches in Revelation. And it basically describes the way that he was doing this. Considered himself a Christian, working in the church. Historians say that his followers attended the same churches as Orthodox believers, but secretly taught those they felt were ready for deeper truths. You get a little bit of a picture of probably what was happening with this priestess in these churches. They showed up and worshipped with everyone else, sang the same songs, believed in the same God, used the same words, but whispered to the few, the ones they thought that were ready, deep enough, deeper truths, deeper things about faithfulness to this God. All of that sounds like a pretty good description of what this church is confronting in Thyatira. The effect, these hidden truths, these secrets, whispered into the believer's ears, was that morality was beginning to slip. Many of them, 
now no longer concerned about what they did with their physical bodies, but feeling enlightened by these secrets that they were in on, started picking up all sorts of sexual immorality and idolatry, secret things, the whole time thinking that they were actually wiser and freer than the other Christians who hadn't been let in on the secret. A kind of deeper faith. Thyatira was the perfect place for teaching like that to take root and grow. I don't think it would have happened in places like Pergamum, with all of its stuffy old traditions, its believers with money, and, and a long history of who they worshipped and how they worshipped. Those people had what they wanted. They weren't too interested in finding new ways to get it. This place, though, blue-collar, working class, a kind of town with a chip on its shoulder about not getting enough respect from the more impressive Roman cities. Secret spirituality, hidden wisdom, deeper understanding. That stuff sounded really good to a set of people who wanted to break through and experience some upward mobility, a little more success in their merchant business, a little more respect when they traveled to these bigger cities, a little bit of secret hidden knowledge that they alone had acquired was just the thing to make faith that much more enticing. Thyatira wanted a faith that would impress and pay off in favor and blessing. They wanted a faith that helped them be successful and live better lives and become more prominent, more established, more successful. I think there's a lot of that, if you were honest, though it may not be mystic priestesses giving oracles. There's a lot of that same mentality that goes around within our own churches, within our own lives, within the own world, the context we live in. Um, have you ever flipped on the History Channel, usually around some sort of a religious holiday, something like Easter or Christmas? Inevitably, there will be back-to-back -back showings of stories like the Bible codes unlocked or the secrets of Jesus finally revealed. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, I searched Amazon this week in their books categories for just the phrase Bible secrets. That was I put in. And it was unbelievable the number of books. Let me give you a few of them. You can buy these. Business Secrets from the Bible, Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance. There you go. The Prosperity Bible, the greatest writing of all time on the secrets to wealth and prosperity. The Secret Door to Success, the metaphysical decoding of the Bible. Barry's liking this, I hear back there. So feel free to buy those. They're on his wish list. So. Hidden it's not just business. It's not just money. Hidden Bible Health Secrets, Achieving Optimal Health and Improve the Quality of Your Life Naturally Through the Word of God. Or beauty secrets of the Bible. You can read the Bible and get more beautiful, apparently, through its secrets. Um, literally, those are whole books. You can buy the book and read all through the secrets that it unlocks, these special heightened kinds of spirituality that lead to all of these promises and abundance. You have to imagine, most of the time, reading stuff like this. Maybe those are extreme examples, but we have plenty of our own. We feel sort of spiritually elite by unlocking the secret pouring over our Bibles, trying to unlock secret prayers or predictions so that we'll be on the inside track of how to get things done and what's happening, constantly finding every Bible story we encounter as some secret set of steps that's going to turn our life around and make it better for us. Um, John Piper has a book, not going to be in that category of Bible secrets, called Supremacy of Christ in the Postmodern World, and he writes about this spiritual Gnosticism as one of the very things that attracts so much of our modern way of thinking about faith. He says this, the spiritual journey in this contemporary sense does not begin with what has been given by God or with what does not change, but rather it begins with the self. It begins in the soil of human autonomy and it gives to the self the authority to decide what to believe, from what sources to draw knowledge and inspiration and how to test the viability of what is believed. The result is that this kind of spirituality is inevitably experiential and even libertarian. Its validation comes through the psychological and therapeutic benefits that we derive. Mixing and matching, discarding or reappropriating ideas in an endless process of searching and experimenting 
is what this spirituality is all about. Harold Bloom explains this spirituality is Gnosticism, and that Gnosticism is the American religion. It's a pretty big statement. Now you're probably saying, hold on a second, I didn't even know what this word Gnosticism was when I came in this morning, and now you're telling me it's what drives most of American religion. How can that be? But the real thing that happened in Thyatira was not just that people were showing up to a priestess to get an oracle. The real sin, the thing that was happening beneath their seeking out this oracle, was this desperate attempt to justify the word Jesus uses to tolerate whatever it is they actually wanted to do, the desires of their own flesh, justifying it as deeper things, spiritually justifying it as actually being faithful to God. The reason ancients wanted oracles and secret rituals was so that they could use it to stay in control of their life. If they knew what God was doing or what the gods were asking, then they could get what they wanted out of the gods. They could please the gods and do exactly what they were told so that they could work that angle to get something for their own benefit. What Piper is suggesting in that quote is, I think rightfully so, it sounds American, a faith that we can use to get where we want to go, picking and choosing what we want to believe to stay most in control. Doing the Amazon book search, figuring out just the book that unlocks the secret for the very thing we're struggling with, taking that book in, putting it into practice, and using this faithfulness to get exactly what we want out of life to fix the problems we want fixed. The real sin is turning our faith into a license to do as we please. As long as there are secrets to be discovered, then we get to be in charge of discovering them and picking which one we'll believe kind of Indiana Jones faith that accumulates details and tools for getting God to do exactly what we would have him to do in our life. That seems to be the thing that was taking root in Thyatira. Jesus had a hard task at a place like this because his goal wasn't to kill all of the energy and enthusiasm for God that was there. You could imagine he could have come down and just said, it's all done, close the doors, you've gone astray, fold it up, everything's shut down. But his real goal was to bring them back, to keep the same enthusiasm, to keep the same diligent work, but to refocus it on a kind of faithfulness to the gospel, not on using the gospel, these deeper things, to get what they wanted out of their own life. It wasn't that these people were seeking spiritual experiences that was wrong. It wasn't prophecy that was leading them astray. It was what they had imagined, these deeper truths about God, were really just truths from Satan, twisting and distorting their own desires for their own good. Blinded by their own desires, desperate to find a way to conform and ease the social pressures, they were so easily caught up in this lie, imagining the whole time that they were actually growing deeper in God, making progress in faith, but actually it was only progress in sin. Here's the big warning I want you to see this morning from this church at Thyatira. As we find ourselves marginalized or rejected, remember these societal pressures that this church is dealing with, there's a growing temptation to find people who will tell us what we want to hear and offer us a spiritual, a secretly deep spirituality as an alternative to whatever we need license to do as ways to ease the pressure and get what we want. There's always a spiritual justification for your sin. I don't know if you realize that, but that seems to be one of the most important lessons we take away from a place like this. Here they were, practicing the deeper things of Satan and the whole time thinking that they were godly for it can always find spiritual justification for your sin. There are plenty of churches like Thyatira promoting these kinds of teachers to leadership and loving what they're hearing from them. Like so many temptations, it's a toxic mix of what is actually a good thing, desiring to know God and embrace what he's doing, with a kind of desperation that ends up taking our eyes off of God and driving instead towards our own interests, twisting God along the way. 
That is what makes this sin so remarkably hard to recognize in Thyatira, but probably just as much this Gnosticism in our own lives. It actually makes people sound more spiritual when they talk about it. It produces plenty of evidence, some of it impressive acts of sacrifice in people's life. Just look what they're willing to give up and do to be faithful to God. And if you ever talk to a person who's really into prosperity or prophetic teaching, they always have a lot more of the Bible memorized than you do, and they're usually able to argue circles around how you don't understand what the Bible is actually saying or teaching. There's a kind of deep religiosity that practices in it that seems to be taking God and seems to be taking the scriptures so seriously. So Jesus gives a test to those who would remain faithful in Thyatira, and gives it to us, too, as a way of weeding out Gnosticism from taking control of our faith. It's the simple word, contentment. Jesus says in verse 25, his advice to those who want to remain faithful, only hold fast to what you have until I come. His one line of advice, hold fast to what you have until I come. Um, those are definitely not secret Bible unlocking prophetic wisdoms of deeper things words. Hold on to what you have. Uh, when we think about deeper spirituality, this Gnosticism, we want new things, deeper things, hidden things, things we hadn't considered before. Who wants what we already have? We imagine what we already have isn't really getting us where we want to go. We must need something new, something better. We want something more impressive, something more innovative. But Jesus says the real secret to push back against these false teachings is contentment. Hold fast to what you have. This is important. Um, if you ever find yourself feeling restless or a little bit bored or sort of unfulfilled with your faith, with what you have, the faith where it is right now, it's because you probably don't really understand what it is that you have. Restlessness, boredom, unfulfillment doesn't come by having something too small, but by making something too small out of what we already possess. Eugene Peterson explains the root of that restlessness is the very sin that drives Gnosticism from the beginning of time. He says this, The reason we get restless with where we are and what we want, as we say, we want more of a challenge or a larger field of opportunity, it has nothing to do with prophetic zeal or priestly devotion. It is the product of spiritual sin. The sin is generated by our virus of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the ancient but presently contemporary pervasion of the gospel, the contemptuous of place and matter and physical being. It holds forth that salvation consists in having the right ideas, and the fancier those ideas, the better. It's impatient with restrictions of place and time and embarrassed by the garbage and disorder of everyday living. It constructs a gospel that majors in fine feelings embellished by sayings of Jesus. Gnosticism is also impatient with slow-witted people and plodding companions, and so always ends up being highly selective, appealing to an elite group of people who are spiritually deep, attuned to each other, and quoting a cabal of experts. It's a pretty good picture of what that Gnosticism ends up looking like, a sort of disdain for the everyday normal living that he says looks like garbage and disorder of everyday life, and instead wanting to elevate ourselves into something bigger, more impressive, more elite. I know that feeling well because if I admit it, it's something that most of us, including myself, have felt at times. Um, maybe to give you an example, I often, when I get on something like Facebook, will scroll through and notice article after article after article telling me what's wrong with the church, how to have a better prayer life, secrets to peace, how to be a better husband, why the church is losing ground, why I'm supporting the wrong political party, on and on and on. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about. And many of the titles are catching. If I don't read this article, my prayer life will fall apart in the next 30 days. I better read it and put all these steps into place. 
Um, most of those articles probably aren't wrong. There are plenty that are, but there are plenty of them that probably give Christian advice. Plenty of them probably would be valuable for me to read and think about. There's nothing wrong. They're genuinely Christian in everything they say. But the whole thing gets me a little bit exhausted and gets me worried that if I don't read, I'm falling behind and must be missing out on the things that I need to be doing to be a good Christian like everybody else must be who's writing these articles all the time. It gets me believing that Christianity has a lot of deep things for me to learn, things that obviously I don't have now, secrets, lists that I need to be paying attention to the experts who have them down. How can you ignore articles like, this was from my Facebook this week, 10 ways to develop an unshakable belief in yourself, the five biggest little ways to improve your marriage, eight ways it pays to follow Christ, seven ways to create a faith-filled workspace, five ways to cultivate faith when times are tough. Those are all real articles, all of these steps that I desperately apparently need to put into practice if I have any hope of a good marriage, believing in myself, a faith-filled workplace, or making it through tough times. Subtly, I think what happens when we find ourselves in this constant listing of new things to learn, new secrets, new lists to unlock, we begin to piece together our own way, reading what we think we need next, thinking that spirituality is primarily something that we learn new and put into practice new each and every day. Somewhere in the background, I imagine Jesus gently whispering, only hold on to what you have. I realize that these articles with their tips and secrets very rarely give bad advice. Most of them are probably helpful to life. But the more I begin to pay attention to them, the more desperate I become to know everything that I need to know to put it all into practice, the more I find myself paying less attention to what it is Christ has done as more and more of my attention instead turns to what I should be doing and how I should be doing it to get all the blessing that I hope I can have. Instead, Jesus says the true depth, this true deep spirituality, is to pay more attention, to hold on to more what you've already received by faith. Look, there's nothing wrong with working on your faithfulness. There's nothing wrong from time to time clicking on one of those articles and reading away and picking up a few things here and there. But the moment you start to feel yourself sacrificing contentment, the moment your attention shifts from what Christ is doing in you to what you imagine you need to be doing, just stop. Take a breath. Maybe go for a walk. Whatever you do, don't keep at it. Take a break and hold on to what it is that you already have. Remind yourself of contentment. I have received more from Christ than I could ever comprehend in an entire lifetime. If there was never another article or another piece of advice, I still have enough in this faith that I received at first to spend an entire eternity plumbing its depths. At one point, it's described as the very thing that angels long to look into. They themselves constantly pondering just how significant, just how deep this faith we have is. Secrets, deeper things, lists to do. <laughs> the truth is most of us are still trying to plumb the depths of what we already have, to understand what we already have, how it impacts their life. Paul has this interesting way in 1 Timothy. You'll remember he's mentoring this younger minister, and I've always, it's always been one of those verses that kind of confused me a little bit, but this week seemed to take on new prominence. He simplifies all of this instruction down he's been giving Timothy, and he says to him, I have a trustworthy thing for you to keep in mind. And you imagine, hmm, Paul's a deep guy with a lot to say. If he's going to sum it all up, this is going to be something profoundly deep that I should pay attention to. And this is what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. End of the sentence. Jesus saved sinners. I am one of them. That's Paul's trustworthy secret that Timothy should hold on to as he does this ministry work. 
Uh, it sounds like something Will could probably learn in Sunday school today and have memorized this deep secret of all of Paul's faith. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am one of. A trustworthy thing to remember. Tim Keller explains it this way, why that simple message is actually not so simple at all. The main problem in, in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel, which I would say are those things which we have already received if we believe. We have not used the gospel in all of the parts of our life. Richard Lovelace says that most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Luther says, I've quoted this to you before, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this doctrine well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. The gospel is not easily comprehended. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not yet fully get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. A stage of renewal is always the discovery of a new implication or application of the gospel seeing more of its truth in our lives. I actually remember the very first time I read those words by Tim Keller because they had a huge impact on me. Um, hold on to what you have. Any ground that you make, any progress that you make in this faith, any amount of depth that you manage to come by, wisdom that you manage to get, only comes by better understanding what you already have. The more that this gospel message, Christ died for sinners, of whom I am one, the more that message works itself into your heart, into your thinking, into your day-in and day-out reflections, the more spiritual depth you take on as a person. This is the thing I want to keep growing into. Not new secrets, unlocked lists that will somehow make me a better Christian, but this. How does the gospel become more central? How do I put myself deeper into it? That was the thing the church at Thyatira was setting aside for these deeper things these deeper hidden things that turned out to be deeper things of Satan. So let's wrap up with this. Um, for those of you willing to hold on, Jesus ends up making two promises. Those who are willing to hold on to what you have can be assured of two things, Jesus says. The first one is this. They would rule over all the nations with an iron rod. That's a pretty remarkable promise because Thyatira was not the kind of place that was ruling over much of anything. These were not the established elites who had any sort of hope of ever becoming rulers, of ever becoming important or significant people. But Jesus reminds them that his kingdom, this message, his gospel, is turning upside down the very value systems of the world. Here was a group of people in Thyatira who were trying to find any kind of secret they possibly could to make the world work for them. They were using the kingdom, they were using the story of the gospel to try to work their own angles for success in this world. And Jesus says to them, and when you do that, you sacrifice the very hope of trusting in him. What does it gain? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Jesus gives the promise, for those who will hold on to this message of the gospel, you will one day become rulers with Christ. Everything that you imagine you're missing out on or losing will become yours. When he returns, it won't be the wealthy elites or the spiritually enlightened with deeper wisdom who will rule. But the everyday nobodies who hold on simply to the gospel, they are the ones destined to rule with Christ. The only thing we need to do is hold on. The second promise is an interesting one. He promises that they will be given the morning star. 
Um, it's really interesting. You read the commentators on this one, and literally one of them says, we have no idea what Jesus is talking about when he says the morning star, which is really, really reassuring for me and probably you if you ever read a passage and say, I have no idea what that's talking about. Neither do they sometimes. Um, they all pretty much came, come to the same consensus, that it must be something about Jesus himself, his star with its sort of uh, understanding back in the book of Daniel, this rising star is probably some sort of an image of Christ. They settle with this image, referencing Christ's, and this image seems to be something like this. He gives himself as the first star before the sun rises to those who will simply hold and watch and wait what they've already received. I like to think that what he offers them is a kind of secret, a kind of secret deeper thing that they could hold on to. Nothing new, nothing if they really put their mind to it they didn't already have. But in their desperate desire to have something, something they were insiders on, Jesus says, I'll give it to you. Here it is, this image that's still a little bit of a mystery even to us today. That you, the ones who hold on, will see me like the first star that breaks in the sky before the sun rises. There's nothing here self-gratifying like the Gnostics were offering in their secrets, but it is a kind of secret promise that those Christians could have clung to. The real secret, the first star that shows up in the sky before the dawn, is Christ himself. While everyone else was running around in darkness, the Christians were those who hold on to the gospel as the first light that was beginning to break into that darkness before the full resurrection hope of a sun rising, Christ's return, would finally flood the world with light. I imagine many of them, as they rose, busy in these trades, businessmen, up at the crack of dawn to open stores and start their manufacturing, Many of them had to have walked out and saw that star rising just before the sun came up. They must have said to themselves, this is what I have, the secret, this deeper knowledge. Christ is already, though it's a small star that few pay attention to, his light, this very gospel that I have is already beginning to break into this darkness. And every time I see it, it's a reminder that the sun is about to rise. No amount of darkness in this pagan city, no amount of deeper spirituality helping manipulate it for my own goods, none of it prepares me for the sunrise that's about to come, like this simple act of seeing this star and holding on to the belief Christ is coming. Light is breaking in. It's a simple message. Christ died for sinners, which I am one of. That speck of light on the sky, but stick with it. Watch it, and the whole world is about to burst into light of resurrection and Christ's return. There's your oracle. There's your prophecy. There's your list of things to put into practice. One thing this morning, uh, the one thing that will change your life if you hold on to it, Jesus, Christ. It's enough just to hold on to this only. The only thing we need to really become deep, to grow in our knowledge, this faith that we practice. Let's close in prayer, and we're going to worship this morning.